This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Now that the vaccine is out there being given to the healthcare workers, next step is for people living and working in nursing homes across the country. Not going to be an easy task, so we'll look at how that can be done, whether the vaccine will even be effective in the older population. It looks like there's more Pfizer vaccine doses than we all thought. You know that saying, get out of Dodge? You heard that one before? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's a mayor in Dodge City, Kansas. Yeah, she uh, left? Didn't get out of Dodge, but got out of City Hall. Oh. This was all over mask mandates. She wanted people to wear masks. She got a lot of backlash. Uh, We will talk to her. Oh, well, well, we'll also look at how kids are holding up as the pandemic drags on and on and on. And most Americans could be getting some more stimulus money, but will the amount actually end up mattering? Let's start with the vaccine and nursing homes. Dr. David Gifford is chief medical officer at the American Healthcare Association and National Center for Assisted Living. Doctor, there are a lot of issues, such as convincing everyone to take it. It's a monumental task to uh, get everyone vaccinated out there. But, you know, everyone's pulling together uh, to really get this done because we see this as a life-saving path uh, to the light at the end of the tunnel. But but what do you do? What do you do with somebody who, uh, you know, at a nursing home? Because it isn't mandatory, right? So suppose somebody, either the person in the nursing home or perhaps a family member, if they have, you know, medical uh, power of attorney, if one of those two says, ah, "I'm not so sure about a vaccine," uh, let's wait a bit. Well, you know, understandable that people have questions about it. Um, usually, we, you know, you talk it through and, and answer their questions. What we're finding is almost all the families and residents um, are eager to get this. They've seen the devastating impact this virus can have. You know, uh, you've all seen the statistics that, you know, the elderly in this setting make up just maybe one to six percent of all the cases of COVID in the country. But um about half the deaths have all come from people from nursing homes. And so they've seen the devastation of it. And so they, they're they eager to get this vaccine. We're not seeing many concerns from family or residents. How is the rollout actually going to happen? We've got a lot of talk about CVS and Walgreens are helping with this part, right? As I said, it's a monumental task. So uh, the federal government's working with CVS and Walgreens, and they're going to bring in pharmacists and nurses into the team, bring the vaccine and uh, give the vaccine uh, to the residents and also to the staff at the same time. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, an efficient way to get this virus, this vaccine out there. Mike uh, mentioned the thing about, uh, you know, staffs and, uh, you know, maybe a desire to take a, a day off, especially after the second shot, because we do know from the trials that some people uh, after the second uh, shot in particular, do feel sort of ill. It's it's not a big deal, but it's enough perhaps to take a day off. Yet a lot of these nursing homes, as you know, are not particularly, you know, overflowing with staff. Often they're short-staffed. Is there a concern at nursing homes that some of the personnel might be reluctant to take the shot just for that reason because they don't want to use up or maybe don't even have any paid sick days left? Really, it's been a concern that, uh, you know, the uh, fever, aches, uh, fatigue, that, and headache that people, some people get after getting the vaccine is going to uh, lead to people staying home. You know, in the, the trials where about 40,000 people got this vaccine, that the number of people who had that 
Uh, most of them were mild to moderate. It did not require them e either to take any medication or was easily treated with, uh, you know, Tylenol or ibuprofen. And so uh, we're not, uh, I don't think we're going to see that many people need to stay out from work, but certainly if they do, they need to stay home because we don't want someone who's feeling ill to come in and have to take care of someone. And, you know, that I think that's something we're working through with each one. We we are we've been dealing with people being called out sick with symptoms and fever from the virus uh, since March. And so we are sort of equipped to deal with that. Dr. David Gifford, Chief Medical Officer, the American Healthcare Association and National Center for Assisted Living. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine might not be in as short supply as originally thought. Many hospitals have quickly discovered the vials they were told contained a maximum of five doses actually contained six or even, in some cases, seven doses. This comes from the Department of Good News. Yeah. We talk with Aaron Fox now, Senior Pharmacy Director at the University of Utah Health. So, Aaron, how did Pfizer manage to produce so many of these vials that ended up having extra doses? So, that's a good question. With multi-dose vials, there's always a little bit extra. It's it's actually really normal. Um, but, I, you know, I think they were just so worried. They wanted to make sure that for sure, five doses were there um, with people using different size needles, different size syringes. This is basically the same uh, presentation that is being used worldwide. And so there's lots of little differences that could happen. Uh, but, but it's really such a great surprise. So what was the conversation like among, you know, the medical types when they started to figure this out? I mean, did someone even call you and say, I'm not quite sure what to do here? Help. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, the first vial that we uh, reconstituted, um, our pharmacist, we were double checking uh, each other. Uh, they, they called me after and said, you know, at first we were worried we had done it incorrectly, but because of all the double checks, they knew uh, it was right. Uh, they said, there's so much extra. Do we have to throw this away? You know, it just it hurt their heart to, to even think about throwing it away. And so it's so nice that the FDA acted really quickly. So is it pretty uniform that, that each each little vial has pretty much the, enough for one or maybe two more doses than thought? Yeah, so we're pretty early on in our on our vaccination. We've given probably around uh, 800 vaccines so far. Um, but the pharmacists that are preparing this tell me that they are getting routinely uh, at least six. It's, it's about six and a third routinely. And so, you know, we're not pooling that extra third um, based on FDA's advice, but we're definitely getting six, six out of each vial. It's great. So, yeah, even one just dramatically increases the supply when you look at how short the supply is as we get going here. Fantastic. It's it's so wonderful. So does that mean going forward that uh, you can count on that being the case down the road? Or is Pfizer now likely to to kind of correct it and in the future, their vials will be pretty much the five and maybe just a tiny bit extra, but not enough for another full dose. We, we don't know exactly. And so, of course, that that is a little bit of a, of a worry, um, you know, knowing that we need to give everybody a shot again in three weeks uh, to, for them to complete their series. But, you know, for since they've been making this, um, you know, one thought would be that Pfizer might just label it to contain six doses instead of five. Do you have any worries about the mismatch that you just kind of talked about that there comes a point maybe that there's something wrong with the supply chain somewhere along the line and people who are right at that, you know, three week period, then now there's a problem because 
there is uh, a short supply, basically, and, and shots are going out all over the place. You have to track these people. Hopefully we've figured that out by now. Yeah, you know, that that is something, uh, you know, of, of great discussion, you know, and a little bit of worry. But um, we feel pretty confident that the way that Pfizer has been preparing these these products for a while, um, that's that's going to last for a while. And so, um, you know, we, we don't think they're going to suddenly change and, and stop doing that overfill. Why do you tell uh, folks who says, you know, look, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, there there is a uh, a segment of, of the country that is suspicious of vaccines. They worry about something that especially that that is fairly new. And then along comes this. And, and yes, it's, it's a great bonanza for you folks that are giving the uh, in, injections because you've got extra uh, serum available. But I can also hear some other people saying, wait a minute, if a giant company like Pfizer can't get the dosage right in the vials, how do we know that they're getting everything else right? Oh, well, you know, first of all, let me say that it's it's not that Pfizer made a mistake. They, they didn't. Uh, they they just did the usual overfill that, that is in all multi-dose vials. And, you know, for, for them to be sure that there were those five, five doses in there, um, it, there's just that little bit extra. Um, you know, pharmacists are very, very meticulous and very, very careful when we're preparing things. And so, um, you know, these are also, it's a very small amount. So it's uh, 0.3 mLs. It's it's almost just like a couple of drops. And so, Pfizer didn't didn't do anything wrong. They didn't make a mistake. Um, as far as folks being worried about the vaccine, you know, I will tell you that here at our health system, um, people are so anxious about when it will be their turn. Um, every last nurse and and pharmacist and physician and phlebotomist and respiratory therapist and, you know, uh, environmental services uh, healthcare worker is just anxiously awaiting when it will be their turn. Um, and so healthcare workers are are all on board for this because we've been living this for months. We're, we're tired. And uh, we see this as, as the light of, at the end of the tunnel. Aaron Fox, Senior Pharmacy Director, University of Utah Health. Dodge City, Kansas was known as a wild frontier town of the Old West. Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp. I love that. I always like that name. <laughs> Wyatt Earp used to round up outlaws there. Well, outlaws of a different kind have caused some trouble. Lots of people reacted really harshly to mask mandates, other COVID restrictions. Threats of violence and resistance got so bad the mayor resigned. She's with us now, former Mayor Joyce Warshaw. So, Joyce, you surprised at, at how bad it got? I am shocked, but then I have to stand back and look at our nation overall and what's happening. And and what I mean by that is I think that we as the nation have allowed some of our, our leaders and other influential people to be bullies. We've allowed them to uh, state their mind and threats and, and so on and so forth. So I think it surprised me to see it happen in my community because Dodge City really is a great community. But I think it's funneled down through the nation, even into the rural areas such as ours. Did you hear from some of your constituents who I presume you know uh, and know you? Uh, and were you disappointed individually in some of those people? Very, very disappointed, very disappointed in some of them. And, uh, you know, but I was there to be a mayor to everybody. So I, I definitely wanted to listen 
to their reasoning and, and to support them and let them know they're being heard. But then when they started accusing me of lying and me of doing this and, and uh, that I needed to go and somebody needed to do something to get me out of the community and all of that, that's when I'm like, uh, no, this is, not a, this is not appropriate. What was the reasoning? I mean, the backlash, was there a common theme to it? Was it like the virus isn't real or you can't tell me what to do or masks don't work? Combination of? All of the above. All of the above. And uh, I had also previously sold my house in the community. So they wanted me to move because I didn't own property. But that is not a prerequisite to uh, serving local government. You need to be a resident and that needs to be your home base. And I had and I had fulfilled those requirements and had voted there and had leased a place. So, you know, I think I became a scapegoat because it was easy to attack multiple things that they felt I was not addressing. Joyce, I'm curious, what is the situation in terms of infection rate in Dodge City? At one time, it was one in every 10 people had contacted COVID. And that's huge. That's huge. That's like, and, that's everybody knows somebody then at that yeah. point. Yes, exactly. And and really what it boiled down to is our health department is connected to the county commission. And uh, so the county commission chose not to support the mask mandate that our governor had um, wanted across the state. They chose not to support that mandate. So then it fell on our shoulders because we are the largest entity in the county. And that's how it ended up in, in our laps, so to speak. And uh, I, pres- I, I, pre- I presume, uh, Joyce, that, that and maybe I shouldn't presume, but that you wear a mask when you're indoors. I wear a mask all the time. All the time. So, um, so- I, don't, I don't leave my home very often either, you know, so... Um, you know, my my big treat of the week usually is a trip to the grocery store to pick up groceries or, you know, if I have to attend a meeting, which our meetings are arranged so that we have social distancing as well as wearing masks. So so when when you're I guess I'm trying to figure this out, I've been trying to figure this out for the past 10 months. So when you meet your constituents or your former constituents who argued with you about the mask, in effect, drove you from office, who said you were lying. What do they think you're lying about? I mean, it's not it isn't a big deal clearly for you to wear a mask. Why is it such a big deal for them, you know, I what they tell me I'm lying about is the fact that they're claiming that masks are more dangerous than not wearing masks, that we inhale carbon dioxide and we, you know, and, and granted, I understand that there are some people that perhaps masks aren't what they should be doing for themselves. And I totally support that. But, you know, my research, and, and I did, I looked for scientific-based research, and I've talked to medical professionals, and all the information I got back from those, what I perceive as experts, said that wearing masks is definitely working in trying to uh, get this pandemic under control. So all this happens. Do you have any regrets for trying to put this into place or, or, or voting for it, taking the position you did? 
not at all. I have no regrets whatsoever. And, you know, I, I still love that community. I still believe that the good will, will overcome the evil in that community. I think the people that are lashing out are, um, they're COVID fatigued, they're, uh, cre uh, they're creatures of the divisiveness in our nation. And, and my hopes are now that we've got the vaccine, hopefully, you know, everything's gonna fall into place for a new administration and we're going into a new year. So maybe those three entities will bring peace and calm for everybody. That's Joyce uh, Warshaw. Joyce, thanks for talking to us. Now the uh, former mayor of Dodge City there uh, in Kansas. Coming up after this short break, are the kids all right? Maybe not. The virus itself has been relatively mild for kids when compared to adults. Doctors aren't quite sure why. But what has impacted kids just as much as adults is the mental health toll the pandemic is having on them. Nationwide Children's Hospital recently did a survey found two-thirds of parents are concerned about their children's mental health, their ability to recover the longer this continues. Clinical psychologist Parker Houston is with Nationwide Children's Hospital, clinical director of the On Our Sleeves program. He talked about kids and mental health with KYW's Suzanne Monahan. I think parents should always be concerned with their children's development and mental well-being. There are always going to be stressors in the environment that we live in. Some of us face more on a daily basis than others. And right now, I think one of the reasons why it's in the national news and why so many parents are thinking about it is that we have this worldwide shared traumatic experience and it's prolonged. And, you know, research certainly shows that the longer a disruption goes on, the, the more instability is experienced, the more likely there is to be a negative impact on mental health and mental well-being. That's not to say that it's predetermined for any specific child or any specific culture or um, that it's going to last for any period of time. And so the advice I've been giving is that we should take stock of our children's mental well-being and we should have frequent conversations with them, maybe more than we even usually do, um, but that we should also teach kids ways to be resilient and ways to overcome obstacles that they might face and that this is a perfect time to be teaching them good habits and good strategies for maintaining mental well-being and mental health or to identify a mental health concern that maybe was lingering below the surface that that maybe now we need to help them seek some guidance for from a, a professional in the community. So, so what are some of your suggestions for parents? Well, when it comes to general strategies to help manage the stress going on right now, my first strategy is always to have an open line of communication. And this can really start as early as kids are verbal when you can ask them and help them describe emotions and moods and you can help teach them how to calm themselves and how to deal with frustration. Um, but it goes all the way up through development and, you know, many parents ask their kids questions like, how was your day? Or how are you feeling today? Or you look sad, but not many of us go much deeper than that and really get to the bottom of, you know, having a, a serious conversation about mental health and mental well-being with our children. And then I would also 
encourage parents to focus on things that are within our control to improve mental health and well-being, things like mindfulness activities and learning strategies to help us feel grateful and to help us recognize opportunities in the face of adversity. You know, there are many different ways that psychologists help people to reframe the way that they think of a situation. And not every situation can be seen as having any sort of positive quality, but um, I, I would challenge people to really try and identify some opportunities right now for learning a new skill set or, um, you know, being a, a community leader in helping to organize some sort of activity. Um, and I'll actually use my wife as an example that, you know, for the Christmas holiday this year, she and another woman in our neighborhood are planning a, a parade through our neighborhood and they're hiring some characters to come do a show for all the kids in our neighborhood. And they're collecting money from the parents near where we live. And, you know, they were spurred on by the idea that so many people are not going to do things like visit Santa Claus or go to that special family gathering um, for the holidays. And so it's a creative way of trying to um, make the best of a difficult situation and, and plan something that will add a little bit of magic to the season. As of this recording, lawmakers on Capitol Hill are still hammering out a deal for a new coronavirus stimulus package. Most Americans would be getting $600. There could be an extra $300 a week in unemployment money, but is it going to make a difference at this point? Beth Ann Bovino, chief U.S. economist at Standard & Poor's. So, Beth, all this time, and you add up the first check, and then this possible one, it's $1,800 over nine, ten months. Is that the best we can come up with? certainly lower than what was uh, when the when the two parties got together in March. And this is also at a time when we're seeing initial jobless claims, as we just saw today, uh, rising. Uh, nowhere near what we saw in April and May at $6 million a week, but four times pre-crisis levels. So people are certainly uh, struggling. So what's, what's our deal or what's their deal on Capitol Hill? Because what I love you know, sarcastically, is these comments from the lawmakers, especially lately, we realize there's bipartisan support for this. Yeah, go figure. Are you kidding me? It took you this long to get it together and you still don't have it together. Well, I mean, we're, look, I mean, it's, it's we earlier on, uh, the underst- understandably, it was uh, an election year, so it was very hard to get two sides uh, to agree on on much of anything. Now, uh, it's lamed up. That also is more challenging. I, I do think, though, that they're, they are moving somewhat closer together, but as in our analysis has showed, that um, if there's nothing done, if there is no agreement, which doesn't seem like the case, uh, we're looking at not getting back to pre-crisis levels until sometime, um, not next year, but the year following. Um, if something is done, if we do come up with a package of, say, $1 trillion, uh, then we get a little bit closer to home. That's a positive. But it also depends on where it goes. And so you're, what you talked about in terms of um, where the money goes, well, if the money goes to certainly those with high fiscal multipliers or more, um, basically more money is spent per dollar then you end up seeing a bigger impact. And where are those policies that do get the bigger bag for the bus? Buck, buck. One of those is for um, um, unemployment benefits or for those for low-income groups. And then you have the issue of of loans to small businesses, because I remember we've done a number of uh, those stories since the pandemic began after the the first round of, of stimulus 
where countless, you know, small businesses said, hey, we didn't ever get any money. By the time we went, it was all gone. And then we followed that with months of reporting with big, you know, giant Fortune 500 companies making off with lots and lots of stimulus money. Is that going to happen again? Well, let, let's take a step back. Um, the um, I do applaud, and sort of, you know, my company applauds that the that the government moved so quickly. We knew there were differences uh, between the two parties, but yet they moved within days to get that uh, that package for small businesses. You're talking about the Paycheck Protection Program, yeah, yeah. Um, but with speed. Our mistakes or our challenges. And so what you pointed to is that much of the money didn't go to those in need. It went to larger, larger companies. Uh, and also the small, the smaller companies, those those ones living by a shoestring didn't get the money. And even if they did try, um, the, the uh, you know, the paperwork was too challenging for them. So they did true. They did change it in the second round and it did improve somewhat. But still, there are challenges this time around. Let's see what they come up with. But I do want to mention, while small businesses are certainly in need, and, they, and that money will help them. It's not necessarily going to be a big bang for the buck for the economy, because what you're going to see is those businesses holding on to that money, um, preparing that, repairing their ban- ba- um, balance sheets rather than putting the money back into the economy. If we are looking ahead, there has to be something, does there, for state and local governments to, to recoup some of what they've lost. And this is a, an argument between the two sides. It has been, especially because it was an election year. Um, but eventually, everybody is hurting. There's budget deficits all over the place. We think how many people local governments and state governments employ. If there are cuts, then that just hurts us later on down the line. Well, I know one of the big sticking points is for state and local giving um, aid to state and local governments. And the question, of course, is how much. Um, I don't know where uh, policymakers are. I know it's a very divided, uh, very, very challenging discussion. But the worry that we have is that state and local governments, there are squeeze on both sides. One, tax revenues have dropped significantly. Why? Because many people are unemployed. Uh, that's one big factor. And also businesses aren't making the revenues that they had made before. But the second reason all is state and local governments carry a lot of the costs of holding up basically unemployment benefits, for example, but also a lot of the health-related benefits as well. So they're squeezed. And if they don't get their money, uh, the worry, of course, is, well, they need to balance their budgets. What are we going to expect? More job cuts down the road. And that certainly is a concern. Beth Ann Bovino, Chief U.S. Economist at Standard & Poor's. Beth Ann, thanks. Another world leader now has coronavirus. France's President Emmanuel Macron has tested positive for COVID-19 following a week in which he has met with numerous European leaders. The French and Spanish prime ministers and EU council president are among many top officials self-isolating because they had recent contact with him. Macron attended an EU summit with other European leaders last week, and yesterday he met with Portugal's prime minister and attended a cabinet meeting. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.